wasn't thrilled with the music of a drum and bugle corps. The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Thursday, December 21st, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today on the show, Alex Nichols looks at stolen valor, where people claim to be veterans but aren't. And Patrick Hogan makes the case for Mastodon, a newish attempt at a social media platform. Here's the dispatch. Power. American conservatives hold veterans in really high regard. Our veterans are not being treated well. Our veterans, in many cases, are being treated worse than illegal immigrants. People that come into our country illegally. Our veterans are not being treated well. But maintaining this alliance requires a level of diligence toward those who would exploit it. Namely, people who pretend to be veterans or embellish their military histories for nefarious purposes. This act has come to be known as stolen valor. And writer Alex Nichols has been looking into why it's out there and why it matters so much to conservatives. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Why are we talking about this now? Well, stolen valor has been an ongoing controversy for several years now. It recently flared up again with Papotia Reginald Wright, who's a man from Brooklyn who claimed to be a Green Beret and boasted of receiving a Purple Heart. And he was recently uncovered as having made up all of that. He served for a much shorter time than he claimed to have served. He was only a driver. He worked in, like, Texas. So he didn't actually see combat. And that was aggregated to Breitbart. It was aggregated to Fox News. It was a relatively minor story, but it it hit the national media because this is just something that people on the American right disproportionately get angry at. This is a, a main target for them. Where does the phrase stolen valor come from? Stolen valor as a phrase was coined in 1998 by B.G. Burkett, who was a Vietnam veteran who made a hobby of uncovering the false stories of Vietnam veterans, including anti-war veterans like John Kerry. And he uh, wrote a book in 1998 called Stolen Valor. That was before manufactured outrage on the internet was really as big of a thing what kind of effect has the internet had on the whole stolen valor narrative that that started with this book? Well, the rise of social media and conservative blog culture has definitely amplified how much people care about stolen valor. And at the same time that social media was blowing up, we also had the war on terror. In 2005, Congress passed the Stolen Valor Act, which made it illegal to misrepresent having earned uh, unearned military uh, medals in decorations. And eventually in the late 2000s, people started to, you started to see more vigilantes trying to uncover these fake veterans as amateur private investigators and then air their dirty laundry on the internet for viral success and media coverage and uh, sometimes uh, merchandise sales. Who is at the front of this stolen valor movement now? Well, B.G. Burkett 
is still involved in this, who coined the phrase stolen valor. Stolenvalor.com, which was originally just uh, a one-page advertisement for his book, transformed into a hub for these amateur private investigators. They have a team of uh, retired soldiers who search out these people. They list all of the people that they've uncovered as faking their military history. They call them secured targets. And there are other websites this has branched out. There was an Atlantic profile last year of Anthony Anderson, who founded the website Guardian of Valor. That's now the most popular website in this genre. What kinds of stolen valor typically end up being shared online? Well, the most viral ones are ones on YouTube. I actually recently got out of the Army, and it's called Stolen Valor. It's, it's I am not stealing anybody's valor. No, you haven't. You're full of shit. Stolen Valor. Right here. Stolen Valor. Let's go. They get millions and millions of hits of people actually confronting veterans in public or fake veterans in public. Don't apologize to me. I apologize. Take that phone in the garbage. I don't want you to wear it anymore. That's my uniform. And typically, they're not high-level scammers. Usually, they're people who seem a little unhinged. They're homeless people who wear... Uh, camo to try to get more money, or they're people who are appear to be mentally ill and genuinely believe they are veterans. Look at this collar, all turned up. You know your collar's not supposed to be like that, right? No. Yeah, your collar's not supposed to be like that. They'll confront those people, they'll get into fights with those people, and it gets uh, it goes viral online mainly for its entertainment value. What do you think is going on with the people who get offended by this? Do they tend to be military veterans themselves? They do. The people who confront these people tend to be military veterans, but the audience for it is much broader at this point. You have right-wing people in general who tend to see veterans as sort of the protagonists of reality. They're sort of a stand-in for like an action movie badass. You usually see uh, like a Marine, a badass retired Marine is the the protagonist of most right-wing fiction. And in their email forwards, it's it's always like a, a, a badass military veteran confronting a liberal thug or whatever. So people love to live vicariously through those veterans and confront uh, people that are deemed unworthy. Is there a, a partisan kind of like tribal partisan aspect of this where the people who are doing the stolen valor hunting are conservatives and the people who are guilty of stolen valor are liberal? I think the accusers definitely tend to be conservative. I don't think the people pretending to steal military service tend to be liberal, or at least they don't exhibit that. But I think there's definitely a blind spot where conservative valor thieves are concerned because you see that happen with uh, Sheriff David Clark of Milwaukee. He's a, a right-wing hero. He appears on Fox News. He almost got a White House position. He's never served in the military, but he wears – he dresses like a um, a military general. He's covered in medals, but they have a blind spot for that. And Donald Trump as well, who said – 
he told a biographer once that he had uh, he felt like he had been in the military because he attended a uh, private military high school. And he's insulted veterans. He insulted John McCain and said he wasn't a real war hero. And Fox News and Breitbart, the same outlets that will pile on to random uh, valor thieves, complete nobodies, will never address that. They'll never address it when people on the, on the right try to feign military service. Alex Nichols is a contributing writer to The Outline. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. The future. Mastodon is a 14-month-old open-source social media service. It's decentralized and fragmented into communities called instances. Mastodon has been called a nicer version of Twitter, but as Patrick Hogan wrote for The Outline this week, thinking about Mastodon as a replacement for Twitter isn't quite right. Instead, he says it's much better than that. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. What's the elevator pitch for Mastodon? It's basically a non-corporate owned microblogging service. So whereas Twitter is owned by, you know, a bunch of Silicon Valley interests, venture capitalists, investors, Mastodon is basically entirely owned, operated and developed by the different communities that choose to be a part of it. And what makes it better than Twitter, in your opinion? When I first started, I wasn't necessarily convinced it was going to be better than Twitter. I thought at the best, at at the most, it was going to be the same as Twitter. But I found over time, I, I was just so much more comfortable being myself there. And I just had such much more interactions. And I really kind of noticed a difference between the person I was on Twitter and on Facebook and the person I was on Mastodon. And I felt person I was on Mastodon was much closer to who I actually am. Patrick, you said that being on Mastodon felt like being on the internet in its very early days. Absolutely. You know, I was a sort of, a, you know, as a teenager in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, I was kind of a very lonely kid and spent a lot of t- my t- free time on Sonic the Hedgehog message boards and things like that. And there's sort of a structure to those kinds of communities, a sort of path to how you join, where like you have to introduce yourself, you have to sort of build up a reputation, and you have to kind of develop sort of a standing in the community over time. And then over time, you become regarded as a regular. And my feeling with being on Mastodon, it just evokes that a lot. If I wanted to sign up for Mastodon right now, how would I go about doing that? Well, that's a good question. because, And one of the reasons why a lot of people struggle with sort of getting started on Mastodon, there are literally hundreds of different instances, as you mentioned before, where you can do that. I mostly redirect people to either joinmastodon.org or instances.social, neither of which are instances, but will kind of help you find sort of the right fit for you and sort of the right place for your home. They're kind of like Mastodon real estate agents, although no money is changing hands at all. So for these instances, the communities, how does that work? So 
each instance is sort of a self-contained version of Mastodon that then connects to the larger sort of network, what's usually called by the people who develop Mastodon as federation, or the another word they use a lot is the fediverse, as the fediverse is, con- is refers to all of the different Mastodon instances when they're connected to each other. So an individual instance is run by a single person who has the time, the technical knowledge, and the computing resources to run an instance. And that instance, like for example, the most, the biggest instance is Mastodon.social. Uh, the instance I use is Mellified.men. That would be the site that you connect to, that you navigate to if you want to access Mastodon on your browser, that you put into the app if you want to use Mastodon on your phone. Um, but even though you're accessing through that one instance and that one instance is in your screen name so everyone can see it, you're still a part of the larger Mastodon universe and you can post and everyone on any instance anywhere can see your posts and follow them, like them, boost them, whatever. Can you run me down the lingo on Mastodon? What's a boost? So a boost is basically a retweet. It it means the same thing. It does the same thing. The reason why they're not called retweets is because they're not tweets. They're toots, kind of keeping in line with the elephant theme. They use kind of the older language instead of likes. They use favorites like Twitter used to do. Other than that, it's pretty similar to how most, you know, linear social media networks as we know them work. There's kind of a history of distributed alternatives to popular social networks, and it's historically been very difficult for them to actually catch on. There was one called Diaspora that got a lot of funding on Kickstarter, but never quite got popular. How is it looking for Mastodon? Are people actually using this thing? Well, it seems to be on the grow from how, you know, how we can measure it is a bit difficult with uh everyone being sort of a little disconnected on their individual instances. But the the bots that have been set up to measure this thing say that Mastodon just recently passed its one millionth user and is still growing. Um, I actually am of two minds about this. Uh, I am skeptical about, a little skeptical about Mastodon's long-term propositions. I'm having such a good time there. I would like it to last, but I know that uh, as someone who was an original paying subscriber to app.net. I know that these sort of alternatives don't always last super long. Uh, I think Mastodon has the the benefit right now of being at a time where a lot of people are fed up with Twitter and are looking for something different or something new. And if that continues, I think that's good news for Mastodon. Do you still use Twitter? I do. I haven't been able to completely uh, divorce myself from it, but, uh, you know, I've used it a lot less than I used to. And, you know, in the time since I joined Mastodon nine months ago, I've racked up 2,000 toots. So I've definitely put a lot of time in there. I've also never said 2,000 toots out loud before now, and it sounds very ridiculous (laughs) in spoken word. Patrick Hogan is a freelance journalist. Patrick, thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for The Dispatch. 
We are going to be taking some time off next week for the holidays, but you should still check your podcast app. We're going to be rerunning some of our very favorite stories from the past year that you may have missed. Thank you so much for listening to us in 2017, and if you've been enjoying the show, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, really anywhere you can find podcasts. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Talk to you soon.